right, what is going on, everybody? This is Pam with 2200 Taps. I have a very exciting show today, and it's going to be, we're going to change the pace a little bit. We've been talking a lot about deep, a lot of deep stuff, a lot of dark stuff, a lot of hopeful stuff, but this is going to be super different. We talk about how music helps change lives and how it's helped save my life in particular, and uh, I am joined today with a legend in the industry. I think he's a legend. Um, Just with all the bands, he's looking at me like, what? Just with all the bands and his accolades and his discography, it's just blows my mind. And he just so happens to be one of my instructors here at MediaTek. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you guys to Mr. Tim Kimsey. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Tim, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself before we get into like the good stuff? Well, yeah, I I think uh, maybe to to kind of start off, I'm a very simple individual. Um, come from a, a small town here in Texas. Um, always had the dream of uh, you know chasing dreams, which my dream growing up was uh, being in the audio audio field as a recording engineer. Um, I was a hopeful musician but i discovered very quickly that that probably probably wasn't going to pan out all that great (laughs) um tried different different things along the way with all of that um you know took guitar lessons bass lessons drum lessons all kinds of stuff and uh yeah i kind of decided that probably by the age of about 15 i was probably better suited to be in a control room than than on the other side of the glass that's so awesome. So what what really drove you to being on the other side of the glass? Like when like your first experience, like what was that like to know like hey man, I'm pushing a button and we're making some magic here? Well, uh I think for me, so I've got to go all the way back to about the age of 10 years old. Okay. Um don't laugh at this, but <laughs> I, when I was a kid, uh my mom um saw that I had some some vocal talent about me so she got me introduced into a boys choir and uh, no matter what you think about boys choirs uh, that can get kind of rough and (laughs) tough Um, I toured extensively for about three years literally uh, went around the world as a choir boy Um, and some of the experiences that I had as a choir boy was literally in studios I didn't know what they were doing on the other side of the glass, but it looked really cool to me, and it looked like something that I could probably get involved with, even though I didn't have a clue as to what they were doing. Um, So, um, kind of fast forward just a little bit, by the time uh, the voice had changed, no longer a choir boy, uh, I was on on a a mission to kind of figure out what, uh, what it was like to be in a control room. So probably by the time I was 17 or 18 years old, I was invited to go uh, participate, shall we say observe, uh, what that was like being in a, in a recording session. Um, it was pretty brutal uh, <laughs> because our, our days were, you know, probably 12 to 14 hours. And that's me just sitting in a chair watching someone else do things. But wow. I discovered pretty quick that, uh, yeah, I think I, I think I wanted to be a part of that. Wow. Now, now our listeners can't see you, but every time I look at you, I just, I, 
like I, t- I threw a name out of like Sarge before, but I want to call you Chief because <laughs> you look like the saltiest, and that's a good thing. Okay, the saltiest person that, and we kind of curse on here sometimes, so you have to forgive me. But who knows his shit? Who has a lot of years under his belt? Yep. Who's not afraid to fail and get back up and keep going? Um, and you just have this, you, you carry yourself in this manner. Like I've, I know I've asked you, somebody else has asked you if you're a veteran because I mean, you got your Punisher patch on or your your patch on your hat. You got your last name, your name tag on the back of it. And I just get excited when I see you because I feel like you're one of us and you're safe and, and I don't know. It's just, I I just want to call you chief. Wow. Um, it's really cool. I definitely consider that a, uh, a, a huge compliment. First of all, um, I come from a, a military family. Pretty much everyone in my family was was military, uh, from you know my granddad to my dad to my brother, um, and even my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got you know I've got three kids. Uh, two of them uh, immediately. Well, I'll back up just a little bit. Uh, my son, um, he is a musician. But at the same time, he discovered that uh, he needed to, to do something with his life, something that mattered. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we as a family, his, his mom and I, we uh, encouraged that tremendously. Uh, number one is that when you're with me, you are safe. That's awesome. No question about it. Um, but our kids um, kind of fell into that on both sides of the family, as a matter of fact pretty much everyone's military i guess i might be the black sheep of the family (laughs) because uh i was kind of the musician type person who had other things in mind i grew up during the period of time uh at the end of the vietnam war Mm -hmm. watched my brother and several of my my cousins and people like that who um who went were a part of the vietnam war um scared me to death I mean, as a, you know, as a kid, when you're seeing all this stuff that goes on, uh, that was the last thing that I was like, oh, shit, you know, I don't, I don't want to have to go off to war. Uh, but as, as I grew older, of course, my mindset was um, whatever I do, I want to be able to do it at the best of my ability. And uh, my kids kind of take after that as well. Um, my son... Um, he really wants and still to this day desires to be a jazz guitarist and he's very good at what he does um and then my daughter she's also a musician but uh she um she's involved with the navy my son's with the air force and they're on a mission and their mission is basically to be the very best that they can be at whatever they have put in front of them so Thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I believe that uh, whatever that you put your mind to, you should be able to accomplish that. And, you know, the engineering side of things and, and being a part of the audio world, uh, I discovered very quickly that um, if you put your mind to it and you bear down and uh, you go for it, and of course, there's going to be failures along the way. Uh, the best thing I've kind of figured out was when you when you fail pick yourself up dust yourself off and let's go again uh failure is the in my in my mind 
failure is the um, it's it's the setup for success. That's awesome. I feel like I just talked to my dad. I feel like I'm talking to my dad here. It's really cool. <laughs> um, or the dad I never had, I should say. Okay. Um, well, let's get into your accolades because I was reading your discography and I, it blew my mind yesterday because okay. I had no idea. I just from like because you have platinum records on the wall here at MediaTek. Yeah. You know, you've got all these stories, and I went online yesterday to just dig a little more and. Your live performance mixing has these artists that I'm a Texas girl. Mm-hmm. All these like red dirt Texas country artists that a lot of sure. people love. Like I'll just read a few like Aaron Watson, Charlie Robbins, um, uh, Turnpike Troubadours, Whiskey Myers, Wade Bowen, Bowen Randy Rogers. Uh, man, the list goes on. Josh Abbott, Johnny Cooper. Man, it's just like I'm reading this and I'm like, I can't believe like I get to like sit in. Oh, Eli Young Band, which is one of my oh, favorites. Yeah. They're um, from this area. Are they know? really? Yeah, they're from the the Denton area, as a matter oh. of fact. Yeah, so they come out of Denton. Okay. Um, well, um, I kind of fell into that. Uh, and the the short of the long with all of that was was I was doing a I was doing a live show I was running uh, what we call front of house so I was the you know the head engineer for one of the shows that was going on and it just so happens that someone was at one of the shows that I was doing and said hey I've got I've got a PA system and uh, I need someone to help me run this. And so, uh, just like pretty much everything else that I try to get involved with, uh, I was going to take this on full bore. Uh, I really wanted to be a part of that. What I didn't know at the time was is that for me to do this, I was going to have to drive from you know from the Dallas area to East Texas. Oh no! <laughs> so I was going to have to go to we call it Naka Nowhere, uh, but <laughs> respectfully, Nacogdoches, Texas, and. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, there's no easy way to get to Nacogdoches. There's just no mm. easy way to, uh, to get there. <laughs> and by the way, that's where most of these bands, uh, that's where I got to meet them and got to really? work for them. And uh, in, in some cases, you know, I was a monitor guy. I, In some cases, I was the front of house guy. Uh, in some cases, I was just the guy who was like making for sure everyone was comfortable. Awesome. That's so awesome. I, I'm sorry. I'm just like fangirling over here because I love these guys so much. Yeah, they're every one of these guys, and of course, I wouldn't have them on there if we had had a hard time with one another, probably. <laughs> but uh, um, e- even with that being said, um, I think that there's a camaraderie out there that doesn't necessarily exist in any other genre. You yeah. have to understand that these guys are at the top of their list, are at the top of their game, uh, because they are very, very good at what they do. Um, and so I, I consider that, you know, a tremendous, uh, uh, gosh, you know, just a tremendous thing to be asked, hey, you, do you want to be a part of this? And so um, I think it's fair to say that in some cases, yeah, I was kind of awestruck myself. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, I get to do this? Sure. I'd oh, love to do it. Man. And I know uh, Randy Rogers and Wade Bowen, they're, they're like brothers. They, mm-hmm. you know, and they even did an album together. We saw them at the House of Blues in Dallas a few months ago okay. together. Mm-hmm. They give each other so much 
crap on stage, but it's 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 a friendly, brotherly, oh yeah, just yeah. dynamic, and that's that's so cool to hear on the inside that these guys are really you already know that they're good at what they do, but to have that camaraderie and fellowship with each other to just make music, yeah, know, and people happy, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, not to cut you off, but no. uh, that that's one of the things. Hey, you know, performers like to have fun. Mm-hmm. And a part of that is some of the uh, uh, some of the jokester jokester stuff that goes on uh, amongst one another. Uh, you know, I had uh, oh gosh, I, I believe it was the Eli Young band. Their front of house guy walked up to me. I was I was actually mixing for um, the opening act with all of that, and he walked up next to me and very candidly, very quietly was watching me finish up the opening act and everything. He goes, you're an asshole, you know that? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) No, that's a good thing. Oh, okay. You know, so um, I I got a real big kick out of all of that. But you also have to understand that some of these bands uh, play festivals and stuff of that nature. And through some of those festivals, we went through some, uh, some really odd, difficult, situations such as Hurricane Ike blowing through the state of Texas. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. Um, Long story short on all of that was uh, promoter had, uh, you know, put it out there. We were expecting 30,000 people for this this festival. Where was it going to be at? Uh, In a place, uh, Jacksonville, Texas, of all places. I've never heard of that. So Jacksonville is... On the way to Nacogdoches, uh, it's okay. in East Texas. Uh, Hurricane Ike comes through, and I literally had people calling me, going, "Are you guys safe? Are you okay?" <laughs> it's like, "Yeah, we're fine. I wouldn't be here if if we weren't." Um, the the short of the long with that was that I I'm not sure that the promoter was prepared for a hurricane to be blowing through East oh my Texas. Yes. So instead of having thirty thousand people, we had something like. 30 really yeah 30 (laughs) um wow some really odd stories with with all of that but yeah so some of these bands they were there and as professional as they were it would be easy for them to say yeah we're not we're not going to perform um but these guys they were there they were on time they were ready to hit the stage if if that's what it called for and they they did that's what they that's what they were there for that makes me so happy to hear that that's what i see that's why i love you know texas country like red dirt music there's just something about it and there's nothing like it you know agreed um so thank you for enlightening me with that because as a texas girl i just got uh, i'm trying to hold my composure because i'm really excited (laughs) to hear stuff like that um so i'm going to roll into the good fun stuff okay so not a lot of people know, maybe a few people, because I did put it on blast on social media, which I'm pulling up right now, but that you in, you were one of the engineers for Vanilla Ice. Yeah. With I his was. very first album. Yep. Um, I do have some people that were asking some questions. from, from They wanted me to ask you some questions. Sure. But before we do that, what was that like working... Um, I mean, just what was that experience like, you know, in the 80s and you see this kid just trying to rap and like that wasn't prominent back then. So 
or was it? Because I mean, I was little, but what was that, what was that like for you? Well, first of all, uh, it was my first exposure, especially to, you know, a white rap artist. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to rap. This was, you know, early '90s, late '80s, coming into the '90s, and uh, I was listening to like CNC Music Factory. Mm-hmm. I was listening to stuff like that, and here comes along this white rap artist and uh, I'll just tell you well first of all I was uh, I was asked if I would be able to uh, if I wanted to I was offered points on that record and as the story goes I really kind of needed to get a paycheck instead of taking points on a record so I turned those points down and points are how you get paid after the fact yeah So I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I was offered something like three points on that record. Mm. So that could be worth, you know, it could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars or it could be worth nothing. Mm. Um, And the truth is, uh, and I can't, you know, hindsight being what it is, I turned those points down. Had I not done that, who knows? I might be a millionaire by now. I don't (laughs) know. (laughs) I, I think... He sold something like 21 million records worldwide. Oh, no. So three points on that. It's, it's getting on up there. And, <laughs> and yeah, so my paycheck for all of that pales in comparison for, for what to it, what it, it could have been. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I'm actually curious if with the whole like, you know, the beat was stolen from. Queen and David Bowie, you know, under pressure. Oh, yeah. Did you, and I don't know what you can divulge, but when you first heard that, did you know what song it was right out the gate? Oh, sure. And it's just like you just do what you got to do as the engineer and let them worry about it in the end? Or what was that like? Yeah, so I had it explained to me that um, it's a shot in the dark, first of all. Mm. So here you've got someone who's not well known yet. Mm. Um, yes, sampling, sampling back then was a little more difficult than it is today. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I I knew exactly what it was. (laughs) Um, wasn't my ax to, ax to grind with any of that. If that's what you guys have got and that's what he's doing. So be it. My job was basically to capture, you know, capture the performance that he was doing. Uh, I had it explained to me a little bit later on that uh, really kind of the way that this works is that you go ahead and do it. If it's a flop, well, no one's really going to worry about it. Mm-hmm. If it's a major success, you take the money that you make and you pay <laughs> those guys. And they got paid handsomely for, you know, for doing that. Oh, my gosh. Well, I that would have been something else to witness that. Um, in the studio, just him coming in, and I just, I just have this vision of this kid with this big hair coming in and, and doing his thing. Um, I hear he's local. He's from the Dallas area. Yeah, um, I, I think it's kind of all over the map. You know, I think uh, he might say that he's from the Florida area, and there's no question that uh, I'm sure he spent a great deal of time there. Mm. Um, but yeah. Um, He's from this area. I mean, he lived here 
we used to go out and sit in his car and listen to the mixes that we had done. Oh, wow. You know, uh, I think he's got a song out there, Rolling in My 5.0. Well, he, he had a 5.0 <laughs> that, that we would go out and listen to stuff out in his car. Um, I will say that probably the... Um, the demeanor changed after after the first, you know, Ice Ice Baby, once that had come out and had hit as big as it did, um, it was a little more difficult to get up close and mm-hmm. close to him. Um, not everybody knows this. Yes, he had a second album that came out, of which I worked on that as well, and uh, he was very difficult to please mm. at that point, but he had lots of people working for him at mm-hmm. the time. And I'm not saying me in particular, but we had, uh, uh, I've got to make mention of this, uh, of this uh, lady. Her name was Gail Sky King out of New York City. And um, the kind of the running joke, I was, I was married at the, at the time, still am, to the same, same lady. But the running joke was, Gail, if you weren't married and I wasn't married, I would marry you. This was one of the most awesome individuals as a programmer, as an engineer. Um, we spent lots of time together That's in awesome. the studio working. Yeah, it was really, really fun. That's cool to build those relationships and find people like that, you know. Haven't seen her since, but uh, I know that she's out there doing great things and uh, learned so much from that lady. Well, I've got a couple questions from... I would say our viewers, but yeah, our viewers, okay. our listeners. Listeners. This is kind of funny. Of course, the first question is, what brand of hair gel did he use? Oh, golly. <laughs> I would have no clue. Never got that personal. <laughs> um, but she did follow up, you know, saying, um, did he really write it? Who laid the beat down? And how did he break from indie to big label so fast? Um, I know it's a lot in one, but um, in uh, summary, I think I can answer that. So okay. started off, you know, as a as a small label. All Tracks Records was the was the label at the time. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Tommy Kwan uh, was the owner of the label. Um, basically, my understanding the way that that works is, is that uh, you've got a small label like that uh, pouring quite a bit of money into an artist if the label believes in that artist small or or large Mm -hmm. Uh, large label comes along and they go hey we like that and so we're going to pay you you know x amount for for taking this artist it's almost in a roundabout way and i don't want to oversimplify this but it's kind of like being a baseball player Okay. You know, we've got this and you've got that and we're willing to give you this for that. And, uh, you know, in, in a roundabout way, that's kind of how engineering is done as well when you have a uh, management company or something of that nature. So um, to answer the question, um, I, I, I would say that um, small label is being approached by a major label, a deal is struck, and off you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's always a it's always a crapshoot as to whether the next record is going to be as good or better. And you know, I have to say that when you hit a home run like that, when you've got Ice Ice Baby, and that's a grand slam home run, 
you that's a really hard act to follow so you know um i think the way that this kind of panned out for everybody was super happy for for uh for rob for for vanilla um (laughs) super happy for him he uh i felt like uh he was the one who made the decision on on the music p- portion of it himself but mm-hmm. yes he had he had a a dj by the name of earthquake that was uh the sampling guru for him and putting putting oh, wow. beats together and and stuff of that nature so basically putting the song together that's cool that's cool so yeah that was those were the only questions and um I actually want to roll into something kind of cool, especially for my metal heads. Okay. Um, I'm a metal head. I love rock and roll. Um, you worked with Pantera. I did. Yeah, what was that? I've heard a story here and there just from you. Uh-huh. But I don't think anybody would believe me if I told it. <laughs> you know, if I'm like, hey, this is what I heard. I'm like, no, you didn't. I'm like, no, no, no. So what? I mean, Vinnie Paul... Vinnie Paul. Mm-hmm. Dimebag Daryl. Mm-hmm. What was that like? It was a party every day. <laughs> it was a freaking party every day. Uh, I wasn't prepared for that necessarily, um, but I was on uh, right here in Dallas. Of course, these guys uh, hail from, you know, the the Arlington, Dallas, Fort Worth area, Pantigo to be exact. Um, but... Uh, for for us to get involved with that, and when I say us, I was teamed up with uh, another guy by the name of Sterling Winfield. And Sterling has gone on to do great, great work uh, with his career, with his background, so on and so forth. I was the older of the two. Um, and the way that that kind of worked was um, this was the Far Beyond Driven record. The record had already been started in Nashville. And I'm not real sure Nashville was prepared for those guys. <laughs> um, why Nashville? Well, uh, the way I understand it is that Vinnie Paul and and Dimes' uh, dad had a studio there in Nashville, and so they started it off there. Um, it wasn't very long after maybe some tracks had been cut there that they made the decision that uh, Nashville was not going to necessarily be able to keep them there. Mm-hmm. And I think a part of it, too, was they wanted to be home. They wanted to be in their own backyard doing whatever they were doing. That having been said, um, I also have to mention Terry Date. Uh, Terry Date, uh, by far, may be one of the finest metal metal producers, metal engineers on the planet. Really? Uh, if you go and look this guy up, his his laundry list of clientele, the bands that he's worked with are extremely impressive. And there's very good reason for all of that. He is excellent at what he does, but also he takes this extremely uh, serious and, you know, I've got stories for days with all of that. But the way that Pantera used to roll was, look, if you're going to be a part of this, so it's not like I'm working for them. Once you start with that, 
you're either in or you're out. Mm -hmm. And that means partying. That means working. (laughs) That means if we decide to take a break and go see a show somewhere, and when I say show, music show, uh, which that happened quite a lot, or if, uh, dare I say, if you're going to go to a nudie bar or something Mm -hmm. like that, or if they are going to go to a nudie bar, you're going to go too. <laughs> so, um, again, a married guy. And one of the things that I noticed was that Terry Date uh, would uh, find a corner and get in it. So we would go to these places, whether it was a show or, or wherever it might be. Sometimes it was just, you know, to go grab a bite to eat. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I, I mentioned this to Terry, and I go, how come every time we go somewhere, I can't find you? Where are? Where do you go? And he goes, I get in a corner, and I suggest as a married man, you do the same thing. <laughs> went, okay. He goes, you got to realize cameras are rolling. When these guys, Dimebag never went anywhere without that stinking camera. Really? There's there's footage out there that no one will ever see, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's years of, wow. of footage. Yeah, That's incredible. Now, you did say they, that it was there's a lot of fun, a lot of partying and all that good stuff. Yep. Now, you told me, I don't know if we were in class or just kind of just talking, about an incident that happened where you were working with them <laughs> and... They I had a party, yeah, and you got fired. <laughs> yeah, um, so <laughs> technically, I was working for Dallas Sound Lab, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and so was Sterling. And this was one of those uh, we're going to stop around uh, one o'clock in the morning. Typically, our days consisted of show up at the studio around three o'clock in the afternoon. And we might be rolling out of there around 3 o'clock in the morning. So, you know, a good 12-hour day. Lots of work got taken, took place during during those 12 hours. Um, you also have to remember, we were there for seven months. And that was pretty much seven days a week, seven days a week for seven months. Wow. So, uh, yeah, this was after uh, uh, a show. Um, we wound up. I say we. Uh, so Sterling and I, we would always get in the truck with, with Dime uh, to go wherever we were going to go. And uh, from right down the street from where the Sound Lab was located, there was a, uh, a music show taking place and they wanted to go. And the next thing we know, it's way after hours. Uh, the club had shut down. The event was over. And we had this entourage of about 30 people who showed back up at the studio. And um, if you can imagine for two guys working for the studio, trying to keep tabs on everything and everybody that's going on, that's that's a, a chore. So all of that to say that uh, literally around 7.30 in the morning, uh, everyone had, had left and I'm walking down the hallway of the studio, and I noticed that every gold and platinum record that was on the wall was gone. Dude. <laughs> uh, the first thing that I did was I called the manager of the studio. And oh, uh, 
I uh, got to give a shout out to this guy too. His name's Johnny Marshall. Johnny was a uh, studio manager for years and uh, he was my first go-to. It's like, dude, we've got, we've got a problem. And that problem is, is that every gold and platinum record that this place has ever had is gone. Oh my gosh. And I don't know where they are. Well, he immediately said, all right, so your job now is to call the owner <laughs> and let him know what's up, and I'm going to call the police. Well, he did. Uh, I get on the phone with the owner. He comes down to the studio, and the police are there walking around, taking a look at each of the individual rooms. They've got to investigate, I guess, you know. Right. Uh, I don't know thing. what there is to investigate. <laughs> freaking records are gone Mm -hmm. they're not here um so i guess russell had had enough time to kind of think about this and in his mind sterling and i were there partying with everybody else we really weren't Mm -hmm. that's the honest to god truth um we were just trying to keep tabs on everything that was going on um, if you can imagine, I mean, there was millions of dollars worth of equipment that was everywhere. And yeah. when you've got 30 people who are partying, you don't want things to happen to those. Well, this got past us. And um, uh, Russell called Sterling and I into the office. And he goes, you know, uh, you guys, you, you're done. You're, you're <laughs> out of here. Uh, we both went home. Uh, slept on it. Of course, I, you know, my thoughts were, well, what am I going to do now? I don't have a job now. But by three o'clock that that same day, actually. So if I had left the studio around seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, mm. by three o'clock that afternoon, I had my job back. <laughs> and again, that has everything to do with Terry Date, Terry Date, um, and apparently, you know. Uh, Daryl and Vinnie Paul stepped up to the plate and they said, you know, uh, we will pull the record from the studio. We will not come back unless we've got those two guys back with us. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, we got our job back. And uh, mysteriously, those records showed back up a couple of days later. Sitting oh, really? out on Sitting out on the steps, you know, all prim and proper. And so, you know, it was just a shenanigan that was, that was taking place. Was that the Far Beyond Driven record? It was. Oh, my. You see, and there's so many people out there that love that record. Oh, me. Can me you imagine? Me included. Had, yeah. Had they cut you guys from the record and had not Vinny and Dimebag done what they did, it may not sound the way it sounds today. Just from that one, exp- I mean, I could be wrong, but I go to extremes when I think of stuff like this. Oh, sure. And just the fact that you two were on this record, you guys were mastering it, or you mastered it. Um, well, we didn't. Did we it? didn't master it. We didn't master it per se, but um, we definitely were a part of the team. And this is kind of hard to explain, but um, again, with Terry Date being at the helm of everything, so mm. I, I literally would call him the mother hen of of, <laughs> of the group. You know, it, with Sterling and I included in that. Uh, there were plenty of talks that Terry would have with everybody about, you know, you don't drink and drive. You don't get out and do shit that's going to get get you killed. Right. And, you know, by the way, guys, whether you are involved in an accident or not, if you hurt somebody, the game is over at that point. That's mm-hmm. how serious this was. Um, so 
I, I have to say that my role and Sterling's role was basically keeping everything on point so that we could move forward. Mm-hmm. It would be super easy to uh, want to be in party mode and not get anything done. Right. But time is money. Uh, they definitely understood that. Um, we had, gosh, dare I say, it's, it's probably the most fun I've ever had in the studio. <laughs> Uh, learned how to drink really, really heavily, uh, you know, but, um, um, we had to, we were put on missions by Terry to, to make for sure that things were on point with all that. So I, I, I'm going to call myself an assistant mix engineer. Sterling was definitely that they picked Sterling up and took him on tour for the next 10 years after that. So, yeah, that's cool. Well, thank you for that story, because I, when I first heard that, I'm like, what? You oh, know, yeah. um, I've never heard of something like that. So it's kind of cool to see that, you know, people take it seriously. And they, that just shows how much respect that he had for you guys. Yeah. Um, you know, I, just. And it wasn't always that way. I mean, mm-hmm. when he first, when, when the band first got there, um, this is no joke either. Uh, basically. Terry was like, we don't need these guys here. I got this, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was Dimebag and Vinnie Paul that went, these these guys need to be here. They need to be here. So I I owe them a huge, huge thank you. Um, got all kinds of shenanigans that went on with that. You know, Daryl would, my wife would buy me these nice button-down shirts and... <laughs> Daryl would come in and rip the pockets off of them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, oh, we had a blast doing this this stuff. And um, uh, eventually, when you get a chance to visit one of my other classes that we do, I'm mm. going to show you some stuff that most people don't even know the kind of time that was spent on oh, these little things that, that took place. I can't wait for that. This is so cool. I can't wait for that. Um, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit too, because, um, as I'm listening to you talk and I'm looking at you, like right behind you in the studio is a picture of Stevie Ray Vaughan mm-hmm. and his brother and his mm-hmm. brother. And I know you've shared with us your stories with him and, sure. um, who your roommate was and stuff. And what was, what was your first experience like with Stevie and, and, and those guys and, uh, even to the point where he ended up getting killed, you know. Um, wow. Um, so for me, it's it, it was so surreal uh, because during the making of Family Style with Jimmy and Stevie, um, I wasn't necessarily on the session, but we broke bread together every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and once again, thanks to Russell Whitaker, who had enough insight to kind of go, look, I've got all these different sessions going on at the at the studio, uh, different rooms, things going on. But every evening, Russell would come in and uh, he would order, you know, like this, this, um, huge platters of food and it was for everyone to come together and, and have, you know, have dinner together. Uh, my, this was before I was married. I, I 
wound up getting married during during while all this was going on. Um, my roommate prior to me being married um, was the monitor guy for Stevie. So he he was on tour uh, when the accident happened. And I remember like it was yesterday, my wife came home. She she actually worked for Sony Music at the time. And she came home and was very upset. Um, I'm going, you know, what's what's wrong with you? And she goes, you haven't heard, have you? I go, no. What what's up? She said, well, um, Stevie, Stevie Ray Vaughan is deceased now. He died. And I'm thinking, what, what is going on? Um, that having been said, she proceeded to tell me that he was in a helicopter crash. Um, and I talked to my, my former roommate. And he told me, he goes, you guys learned about this before we did. I was out on, he was out on tour with them, uh, and they had already headed over to the next uh, venue to, for Stevie to perform at, and he goes, we didn't know. And so all we knew is we arrived there, and uh, management came up and said, pack your bags, you're going home. And so that, that just kind of uh, became very surreal, and the truth is, behind all of that, we had just had a record release party at Dallas Sound Lab, like literally a couple of days prior to that happening. Mm-hmm. So there were still Texas flags and banners up in in the, oh, wow. in the studio for him. For him, which record was that? Family Style. Family Style. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah it 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 was very surreal. Oh. It was. Uh, it was a very, very sad day because, you know, literally my my wife loves Stevie Ray. Mm-hmm. I love Stevie Ray. Um, my kids grew up in the in the womb. They were listening to Stevie Ray most of most of you know being in the womb. That was something that we did. Wow! And I I actually grew up to uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Mm-hmm. By then, I think his greatest hits album came out. Okay. Um, but I'm a guitar player, and I remember. I would listen to his riffs, mm-hmm. and it just sucked me in. And then Texas Flood, and I'm oh, like, yeah. this is just incredible. And uh, rumor on the street, and it's actually been confirmed, was that he not only played the heaviest strings on that guitar, mm-hmm. but he would put super glue on his fingertips so they would not bleed. Right. No, it's true. Oh, that's it's very so true. Cool. It's very very true. Um, I don't know all the behind-the-scenes stuff that took place, but uh, you know, there's uh, there's a guitar-type tone, uh, Leslie guitar. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression Mm-mm. expression before, but a guitar that runs through a Leslie cabinet, okay, intended for you know a Leslie organ, mm-hmm. Leslie keyboard. Um, but um, back then, we used to have a uh, a studio assistant that uh, Stevie would not really get into the playing without that guy there. And that guy's role was to sit on top of the Leslie cabinet to keep it from moving so much. <laughs> yeah, it was, oh my it was It was really pretty bizarre, but I thought it was kind of precious all at the same time. And I think that's because I, I haven't heard anybody been able, 
anybody that is out there to really capture that sound. Like people have tried and I've seen some young people play his riffs mm-hmm. and it's not the sound, but it, it sounds amazing. It's just not his sound. Yep. And to know that he played with the heaviest gauge strings he could use mm-hmm. and was super glue. Mm-hmm. Like that blew my mind. Well, that was amazing. I think, you know, if you go back and you take a look at some of the live performances that are out there, he's very physical with that guitar. Mm-hmm. He is extremely physical. And uh, um, I, I think that's the difference. You know, I this is just my personal take on things, but uh, bone structure, how how big your fingers are, the kind of pressure that you put on them so on and so forth equates to that tonality and the way that that instrument is played um i you know i haven't there's lots of great blues guitarists out there but uh no one that's ever come close to Mm -hmm. to that Um, yeah i'm right there and i think there's a stevie ray tribute band a local one and Mm -hmm. i'd like to go see them just to see Sure. And maybe kind of see what it may have been like to see him live, even though it's not him. Yeah. Um, just get a feel. But thank you for that story. And we're about to wrap up here in a little bit, but there is one last story I really would love the listeners to hear. And it's kind of why I really wanted you on this podcast, which thank you so much, by the way, for being here. Oh, my pleasure. It thank you for having me. Sure. Of course. Um, you're a Grammy-nominated engineer. You have been in the spot that I am hoping to be in one day. I hope you are, too. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm learning from you, so that's a good start. (laughs) But I know you were sharing with us a little bit about Kurt Franklin Mm -hmm. and how that led you up to that nomination. Sure. Um, How did that happen again? How did you... I know it was just kind of by... It was. I fell into it. Again, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it... At the end of the day, it comes down to relationships, and it comes down to, um, as I've said in class before, you know, I don't believe in luck. Luck Mm -hmm. is being prepared to take advantage of the situation when it comes about. Uh, And the truth is, is I had just uh, wrapped up a a metal record um, with uh, Merciful Fate, and so, you know, for those of you out there who are into got what I call gothic metal, again, these guys are super professional. Um, they, it's 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 it was a whole different thing. Um, but uh, I had walked away from the metal scene mainly because I had some I had some personal things that I didn't want to be exposed. Mm. Um, belief and I'm just standing up for the integrity of my beliefs and so on and so forth. The short of the long with all of that was uh, uh, I had kind of put my foot down with uh, with the uh, producer of Merciful Fate. I was co-producing uh, that record and I basically threw out an ultimatum um, that if a certain song went on a particular album, that I would be done. I would not continue being their engineer. And um, they took that in stride. They, uh, 
I, I told them that I would help them find someone else to to work with them and everything, but I was going to going to be done. And so what I realized was after I put that ultimatum, and this is what I tell you guys too, if you're going to throw an ultimatum out there, be prepared for what the answer is going to be coming back at right. you. Be prepared mm-hmm. to you know stand up for it. So um, next thing I know, I'm I'm without a job. <laughs> I'm literally without a job, and it. I don't think it was more than about maybe two weeks after the decision had been made that I was going to walk away from, from all of that. I, I realized I'm pretty much immediately that, look, I'm giving up a year's salary. Mm-hmm. I'm giving up quite a bit of money to walk away from this. But a couple of weeks later after that is when I get a phone call from uh, Kirk's manager, his personal manager, and he tells me, he goes, man, we've had our eye on you for quite a while, and uh, it was recommended that maybe we contact you about this. And the truth is, is that um, their engineer at the time, he was out of New York, uh, he had uh, maybe done a couple of things that he should have talked through with uh, with Kirk, mm-hmm. and that got him released off of that record. And they were looking for someone, so uh, I took that. I took that. It was like a sign from God above. It was like, man, you know, this is awesome. I get to step from this over here to something that, quite honestly, I was darn excited about. It was like this is freaking Kirk Franklin. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a big deal. Um, so to kind of fast forward with all of that, went through the, uh, the new nation record with them. Um, I was one of literally 13 engineers on that record. And, um, uh, I've got to, I've got to throw this out there. So what I didn't realize when all of this was going on was that, um, there were three different mix engineers on that record and it was all happening at the same time my job so they they fly me to los angeles i'm there for uh, about a month and my job was to put that record back together oh wow um it was in pieces and so i put that record back together and which also got me uh it got me to the point to where it's like, so while you're here, let's go ahead and have you mix the whole album. Well, there were two other people who mixed that whole album at various stages. And um, job is done. I'm back home. And I get a phone call from um, another guy by the name of John Congleton, who was my A2 uh, on some of the Kirk stuff. He goes, hey, man, and you got to also imagine this is like early stages of Internet, early stages mm. of cell phones. It's in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was the late 90s. Late 90s, yeah. But um, um, he goes, man, you got to check this out. You're all over the Internet. And I'm going, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he goes, no, this is a good thing. Uh, next thing I know is I've got an invitation to show up for the for the Grammy Awards and um, gosh you know it happened really fast it happened uh, again very surreal it's like how can this how can this you know Texas podunk small town (laughs) boy get 
get nominated for for something like that. And uh, I I think it had everything to do with relationships. I think it Mm -hmm. had everything to do with being right place, right time, really ready to go with all of it. And you also got to remember that I've I've got a huge passion for the art of engineering and being a recording engineer, being a producer, all of the things that we aspire to want to be, I got thrust into it. And it was uh, it was a tremendous amount of fun, and like I said, I wasn't expecting it. Um, by the way, you know this guy John Congleton who called me, he's like, you know, we don't do this, we don't do it for the accolades. We we do it because we we love what we do, and mm-hmm. he's he's right on target with all of that. And a couple of years ago, he was also not only nominated but won. Um, I want to say it was like producer of the year. On a, on, a, on a record that he had done. That's so cool. Yeah. And so, like, John is, he's a dear friend of mine and uh, doing great things. He, he moved from Dallas. He lives in Los Angeles now mm-hmm. and just kicking ass at everything that he does. He's all over the place. Oh, that just makes my heart, like, melt. Because you told us, I remember, not word for word but or verbatim, it was just more of, you told us about the Vanilla Ice incident, about not taking the points. Yep. And you, you kind of just wrapped it up in one ball and you said, never miss an opportunity. Yeah. Don't ever miss these opportunities. Mm-hmm. And when you share that story about Kurt, I feel like you really mi- learned that this was an opportunity. Sure. And to go to, I mean, you were married and had a family at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And you went to L.A., to do this and to put it back together. Mm-hmm. And was that analog days or was Pro Tools already that coming out? That was analog days. That was analog days. And, um, well, the short of the long on that one is, is that uh, I, I, was given, I was given the ability, I was told, I was left alone in the studio, and it basically was literally to put the record back together. So if you can imagine marrying vocals back to the tracks themselves, that's easily done nowadays. Mm -hmm. Not so much back then, not on analog tape. So you were literally putting it back together. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, but I was given, you know, I was given uh, the ability to hire whoever I needed to hire to help me do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I can't remember this guy's name. It, it's been a while back. Uh, but I, the very first thing I did was I found someone who was uh, exceptionally sharp, exceptionally well, uh, well put together. And I asked him, I go, this is crazy, I know, but we have got to sync these vocals back up to the music that's there. And uh, this guy sleep deprived and this went on for weeks uh but we got it done he uh at the time so digital was not really a big thing quite yet Mm -hmm. and so um he had a digital workstation and he was able to get everything put back together for me and then we then we mixed it out and the rest is history that's so awesome yeah and if you're not familiar with analog Imagine like when we were little and we had our, those tapes. Mm-hmm. Like I, I would put, you know, I would put the little piece of tape over the that one part and record my own mixes. Uh-huh. And I would cut it. I would cut the tape in 
piece it back together with a piece of tape. Yep. Kind of like that, but on a bigger scale. Yeah. <laughs> and a yeah. more professional scale. <laughs> Hopefully so. Yeah, if it was well done. Um, yeah. And it, it's just, it blows my mind to think the amount of time and effort and dedication that you one would have to put towards a song uh, just to do that. Um, mm-hmm. it, it like, and real quick, we're about to wrap up. Like I saw a little special on Bohemian Rhapsody on YouTube mm-hmm. where, uh, the guitarist, Brian, I forget his last name. I forget his name. Brian May. Brian May. He pulled out, uh, the tape. He pulled out the, the original tape mm-hmm. and this thing was in pristine condition, but it's very well protected. Mm-hmm. And he explained how the process worked and it, I was like, oh man, you gotta have a lot of patience. But it comes back to what you said is having the passion for it. Yeah. And loving what you do. Yeah. And I really feel like here at MediaTek, uh, which used to be Dallas Sound Lab, just a different location, correct? Correct. Um, I feel like that's what it it provides us. But I feel like all the instructors here, yourself included, it's you guys are like a walking history. You know, and not to age, not a, not like an age aging. Um, what am I trying to say here? I'm not trying to age you guys. It's more just like all the knowledge and everything that you've done. Not many people have access to this, or you guys. I like to consider it. Um, I like to consider it. Here's what I tell people: it shows you. It's that simple. A lot of people think that they choose it. I thought I chose it when I first started. But you find out actually pretty fast that uh, it chooses you. And that is a, when you think about how many, you know, millions, billions of people that are on this planet, when you get into a situation where, um, well, first of all, it's, it's a, it's a big world, but the world that we live in is pretty small when you start thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I I literally believe that it chooses you, whatever it is. Um, and there's no denying that because I've tried to walk away from this before. I've mm-hmm. tried to walk away from engineering. I've tried to walk away from being around technology. There comes a point when you get to, to my age, it's like, when does this stop? You know, when does the learning process stop? I just want to relax. I just want to, you know, live life. Um, there have been times when, you know, I've got colleagues out there that they they can tell you. I It's like, I want to go drive a truck. I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, but right about the time that you think that you don't want to do it anymore, it comes back and goes, we're not done with you yet. You're not done here. And so I, I really think uh, the biggest part of this is embracing whatever it is that you do, whether it's, you know, whether it's being a mechanic or being uh, a recording engineer, uh, when you are called to do that sort of thing. And by the way, this is one of the things that my son has learned. Yes, he wants, and he is a musician. He's a very good get, guitar player, but not always is that opportunity there um, for you to to advance with that. So what he has learned is that he's extremely good with his hands and he's extremely precise in everything that he does. So that having been said, 
I think he's beginning to kind of figure out that, yes, I can be a musician and I can be very good at this, but for right now, that's not my calling. My mm-hmm. calling is to be the very best that I can be at what I do. And so that's that's what I mean by that. When it chooses you, there's not really walking away from it. I often tell people, and my wife says the same thing, she's a nurse. Uh, I'll always be a recording engineer. I'll always be a, a type of person who wants to be around music. Um, but there may come a, come a day where I need to hand that baton over to the younger generations that are coming up through through the the field of recording and hand that over to them and give them ammunition to you know to work with and so that's kind of why I'm here as a teacher it's not because of of anything other than I realize that there's there comes a time where it's like take that knowledge because back in the day when I first started it's like everything that you learn you keep that really close to you mm-hmm. This is ours. We've invested this time in you, and it doesn't need to go anywhere else. Times have changed with all of that. And so uh, we get to the point now to where it's like, yeah, share that information. Hand that over because that's going to give someone else an opportunity to advance their careers and to advance in their passion of what they do. And so that's, that's honestly one of the biggest reasons why I'm here is that I've got to live a dream. It literally is a dream that has come true. Do we ever reach our, our, our goals? I don't think so because I think the goals keep changing, Mm -hmm. you know, through, throughout time. Um, So, you know, with, with, with that in mind, yeah, there's been times when I've wanted to just put it down and walk away, but I don't think that will, you know, it's not ever going to completely go away. I feel like I just got taken to church. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I just want to thank you again for all that you do. Um, Oh, well, thank you. Because these podcasts and the whole purpose of my business of 2200 taps is putting music to people's stories sure and because music is very healing yes and as i sit here with you and i think about that it's like music can't happen unless we've got people like you in those spots with the trained ears to merge with the artists to bring this thing to life Mm -hmm. and i always tell people it's like having a baby it's like making a baby because you don't know what it's going to look like when it's there, but you know it's going to be beautiful when it is. Absolutely. Um, and music music helped save my life five and a half years ago because someone chose to share their story through mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. And every guest I've had on these podcasts, music has helped either save their life or impacted their life in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can honestly say Steve Ray Vaughn, when I was a little kid, he helped me in those really shitty times. Oh, yeah. yeah. And from my heart to yours, thank you for that. Oh, well, For thank being you able to for, capture that. Well, thank you for, you know, you know acknowledging acknowledging that. I, I think music is the universal language. It's the one mm-hmm. thing that crosses every barrier that's out there. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what genre it is. If it touches somebody, especially if it touches them in a healing way mm-hmm. or in a way that is a positive direction, um, you know, that it, again, it crosses all barriers. It is the kind of thing that I'm still learning. 
as a as an engineer, I continue to learn. Uh, but that being said, you know, one of the things that I learned maybe four years ago was that I had a proclivity to write music. Who would have ever thunk? Well. Um, you know, I had a lot of naysayers around me. This was a very serious thing that was taking place, of which at some point I'm going to share with you guys in, in class. Cool. But, um, you know, a documentary that was done. I, too, like to tell people stories. Mm-hmm. It comes from a different angle, but it allows me to be a voice for them that they can't be for themselves. They're not going to go out, you know, they're not going to go out, look at what we get to do. But I get to do that with people. It's like, take a look at this guy over here. He's not getting rich by what he does. But you know what? He whistles on his way to work every day. <laughs> he enjoys what he does. Um, and this is one of the things that I've, I've started really honing in on and really started to think very heavily about. So if if my ears went away tomorrow, and let's say, you know, I've got tinnitus and I can't be an engineer anymore Mm. Uh, one of the things that I love to do is sit down and figure out how I'm going to create something that is going to touch somebody somehow some way and so um, yeah I'm I'm learning that um, I didn't know I had this in me but man I love doing it I (laughs) love getting the opportunity to kind of go I'm not writing notes down. I'm not, you know, I'm I don't have a I don't have a staff that I'm writing these notes out on, but I have my ways of doing this. Mm-hmm. And um luckily, luckily for me, there's a few other people out there who kind of went, there's something to what you're doing that we would like to, you know, maybe put to use, put to use along the way. And so I'm enjoying it. Enjoying it a whole bunch. Well, thank you again. Um, That's awesome. And I personally can't wait for that. So before we close up, where can people find you? Like on social media or something? Where can people find you and your projects and stuff? Well, um, I I have to admit that I haven't been a good boy when it comes to (laughs) keeping up with uh, with the website and stuff of that nature. That's on my bucket list of things that need to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a website out there. It's uh, timkimsey.com. Um, social media, Facebook, Twitter, I've got all of those out there. Uh, my Right now, still my go-to is, is uh, probably Facebook, putting you know pictures and stories and things out there. Uh, I have lots of friends who go, man, you sure do take a lot of selfies of yourself. And it's like, <laughs> guys, you know, quit. I, I, it's not that I have fans or anything, but I do have to put myself out there. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to stay, if I'm going to stay employed, if, if I'm going to stay, you know, in, in the know, um, I, I, I kind of need to, I kind of need to do that from time to time. But, um, um, you know, Timothy Kimsey, uh, on Facebook, yeah, you can find me out there, and um, gosh, I don't want to toot my own horn, but somehow, some way, somebody figured out that I could have a Wikipedia page too. So what? that's out there too. So, what? <laughs> yeah, I need to jump on that. I don't know who. I kind of know who did it, but. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, I gotta read what's in there. Um, 
Cool. Well, we are done here. And you guys, I really hope that this episode helped inspire you. Um, this one's a very family friendly episode because yeah. the other ones are not really suitable for children uh, or even some adults because I've had people say, I don't want to hear that just yet because <laughs> uh, we talk about the shit that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah. Um, that's why I felt like just having a more lighthearted episode um, with somebody of, of, you know, your background would help lighten the mood. And um, I really hope this episode impacts somebody out there. Yeah. I think it will, because I know I'm, I'm just, like, fascinated at what we just did. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I thought of one, one thing that might, you mm-hmm. know, might be fun for you guys, and that would be right now it's just out on YouTube, but that's Audio Knuckle Busters. Yes. Audio Knuckle Busters. Um, we try to keep that family friendly. <laughs> um and I, I, I told my my group of audio knuckle busters, I go, we're not going to cuss on this thing. And I was the first one who, who did it, <laughs> you know. And so anyhow, <laughs> that having been said, there's uh, there's lots of cool, <laughs> cool stuff. We don't talk technical. We just talk, you know, mm-hmm. li- lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Man, see, and I haven't really cursed a lot on this podcast. My My episode where I told my story, it was like. I, I somebody needed to get some dish soap because it would not stop coming out. But I was I was I was in the moment and I was feeling it. And I do curse like a sailor um, when I'm in those moments. But um, I, I'm a good girl today. I'll yeah, we're, 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 we're we all have colorful language from time to time. We do, and I I really love colorful language. Apparently, I do too. I do too. <laughs> well, thank you, Tim. And again, you guys can find me at 2200taps.com that's 2200taps.com and we'll see you later bye bye